and gentlemen, coming to you from the Sodom and Gomorrah of America, direct from the heart of seething, passionate, sexy Greenwich Village. From the limelight on 7th Avenue, that avenue of un shut up, that avenue of unmitigated sin that flows like a vast river of chicanery down to the sea, we bring you America's favorite gentleman. <laughs> bring you America's greatest juicer player. We bring you the voice of defrocked corporals everywhere. There he is, your friend of mine, Gene Shepard. Thank you, friends. I can see that I'm among friends. Yes, when the overflow from Jersey hits New York, it's like, uh, what was that old expression? What is it that hit the fan? Shucks, I can't remember it. It's right on the tip of my tongue. You know, it's a funny thing. I, I'm walking in. I, I, the things that I should remember, I can't. I'm walking down the street here about 20 minutes ago. My ears are freezing. And all of a sudden, it hit me. It's colder than a well digger's. I still can't remember it. So you see, the human mind is fallible. Yes, as we play upon that vast cello of existence. How many Holden Caulfields do we have in the audience tonight? How many sensitive creatures do we have? Creatures of infinite beauty walking through an evil society. Isn't it great not to be part of society, gay? <laughs> yes, the world is just composed of two people. Us and them. The good guys and the bad guys. Which one are you? Well, <laughs> well, come on, you should know, I mean, of course you're good guys, of course, I can tell. That Farina look in the eye, I can tell that look of latent Dick Foranism. How many of you have ever seen Dick Foran on the late, late movies? Oh boy, that wavy hair, that gummy Jersey look. He sits on top of that mechanical horse that he rides. Yes, that's another world. Incidentally, has it ever occurred to you that everybody inside of his own little soul is worried that he really could be a good guy? Can you imagine yourself arriving at heaven and you think you've lived a fist-fighting, rotten, crummy, stinking life and everyone in the crowd here thinks he has? There isn't a single person at any table here in the limelight tonight who doesn't have a little cloud hanging over his head that says, one day, they're going to find out. 
Oh, sure. I mean, I don't think there's a single one of us who would ever be surprised you're walking along Fifth Avenue, you know. You know that gummy look, you just walk along. You know what I mean? The human being at idling speed. You know, where your head is not thinking nothing, you know. This is about 97, well, I'd say 97% of our life. Your mind is just barely turning over, you see. And all the glands and stuff are just continuing to run. You know, the body is still going, the pores are open, you're just going. The human being at idle speed, when all of a sudden a hand, a big heavy hand, lays down on your shoulder, just boom. And he says, okay, let's go, Howie. It's all up. And you go, you know. You go saying, yeah, okay. And then obviously he says, what am I going for? He said, it doesn't make any difference. You know. Let's go. And so deep down within each one of us, there's that good and that evil. Can you imagine arriving in heaven? And you look down there, you know, and you think, you, yeah, everyone says no. That's where you are going to get cheated. Everyone says, no, not me. I'll never forget that time, oh boy, in seventh grade. Oh, oh, if my mother ever found out about that one. And she thought I was going to Sunday school. Oh, me and Esther Jane. Behind the Sherman Williams paint sign there. Oh, yeah, and the time I stole the four stamps from Mr. Bullard's desk. Oh. Oh, what an evil one. What a rotten person. And then you arrive at heaven, see. And you... And by the way, that's going to be a surprise, isn't it? <laughs> you know, isn't it funny? I often wondered about... We're living in a world of non-believers. There isn't a single one of us anymore who really believe. You know, you don't believe in heaven and hell and that stuff. A lot of guys talk about it. And preachers constantly are saying things about it. But you don't really believe it. Can you imagine this hippie? He's walking across 7th Avenue, you see. He's got his pot going. Walks across 7th Avenue, and he's about six shades higher than he should be in the middle of the day. And he's floating, you see. He's doing slow rolls on his way to Barrow Street, you know. He's just floating along there, and all of a sudden around the corner comes this cab over engine Mack truck. He goes, and he gets this, he gets this, this hippie on a fantastic carom shot. So the, the hippie bounces off the front of the limelight. He goes swishing over, bangs off the side of the kinneret. He slides four blocks down 7th Avenue, and it's all over. He's gone, and 30 seconds later, he finds himself flying along a big chute like that, and he feels wings coming out. And the next thing you know, there he is. Pearly Gates. He takes one look at it and says, All right, what kind of a put-on is this? <laughs> and 15 seconds later, he's standing there before this great judge. He looks down and says, Okay, Ike. I'm hip to the fact that you have lived a life which you consider decadent. However, I have bad news. You are going to the land. You are going to heaven. 
I could see this guy, boy. He says, what you trying to do, God bug me? Because he secretly is afraid that there are sins beyond anything he has discovered. Each one of us has that little sullen thing inside of us. That little thing that says, just once, I'd like to be in on the ground floor of a really dynamic sin. I'd like to be one of the original workers in the field. Would you love to discover a new sin? I mean, you know that old sloth. Remember that old sin? You remember that one? That's gone for crying out. Wastefulness, that's a crummy old sin for crying out. Our whole philosophy is based on wastefulness. Speaking of, of, of new sins, I have a suspicion that we are going to have to answer for a devil of a lot. Excuse the expression. As Americans, <laughs> today, did any of you see probably the most fantastic television show of the eon? Incredible. You know, I'm sitting around the pad, you know. I'm sitting there, I'm thinking about the show tonight. I'm preparing these clever bon mots. You know, I'm sitting there thinking. And so I reach out and I turn the TV set on, which is my favorite soporific. It has replaced Castoria in my life. And... Uh, <laughs> Did I ever tell you, by the way, I knew a kid who used to get higher than a kite on Castoria. <laughs> he would go on these fantastic Castoria binges at the age of four. He would lay around the house. <laughs> and now he is a famous copywriter for a liquor company. <laughs> Which, incidentally, we'll get to a little bit later. I'm sitting there, say... And I turn the TV set on, and ooh, you know how the set goes, ooh, and it's black for a while. There's nothing going on. That big buzz goes, and I can hear the police calls come in. I got a great TV set, and the police calls go out. Soupy Sales comes in, goes out, and then this picture goes, and it stops. I can't believe it. It's the damnedest picture I ever saw on television. This side of the first time I saw the Preparation H commercial. Which I consider a great one-minute existentialistic film. I figure this goes beyond anything Andy Warhol has ever done. I like that big tall man standing there, you know. This is my favorite television star. <laughs> you imagine him getting, getting recognized at a cocktail party? It's a big TV star. Aren't you the Preparation H man? He's standing there scratching. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, so, so there's all kinds of great little things that are going on. You get, you, you get hung on this stuff, see? So I'm sitting there watching, and on camp, I believe it, it's the greatest picture of our age. Here is a picture, a split-screen image. One half is a fifth-rate football game. And the other half, there are two guys waiting to get shot up into space. And there's this, this football announcer. He says, yep, we're down here right on the 50-yard line. We're glad to greet all you sport fans. And you can see this rocket going... 
and on one half of the screen is a rocket about to go into orbit, carrying two astronauts, and on the other side of the screen is a fifth-rate quarterback making a fumble. And I began to see that America's concept of sports has changed. That the space race is some kind of a big football game. And I'm surprised they don't send guys like Mel Allen down there to do it. Hello, fans, space fans. And you know how they always introduce the football players before the games these days? They come trotting out, you know. And the camera picks them up, and they got their helmet, and he says, there goes Lefty Grabowski. He spits in the camera and runs past, you know, big number eight, you know. <laughs> Have you ever had the feeling these are the oldest-looking college kids you ever saw in your life? Gnarled and twisted faces, you know, big black beards that come running, running past. And then you look around at real college kids. These little skinny kids, you know, all around. <laughs> no wonder half of the college kids grow up to be science fiction writers, writing editorials for the New York Times, you know. <laughs> you didn't lay a glove on that one, gang. That's it. All right. <laughs> you know, have you ever had a feeling, you know, uh, my favorite slogan to come out of the recent election is, John, John Savior is my Lindsay. So we're all waiting here for the wand to move. The only guy apparently who was not convinced is Mr. Uh, what did Lindsay call him? Mr. Quinn? <laughs> did you hear that great exchange? By the way, how many of you missed that? I can do the best imitation you ever heard of Michael Quill. You know, other guys do Humphrey Bogart, I do Quill. That's why I've never been commercial, by the way. He says, What is it? I am glad at long last that the transportation workers of the great city of New York are at long last going to get a equitable contract. <laughs> now, the mayor, the honorable mayor-elect, Mr. John Lindley, There's Quill, you know, he's got his funny face on. <laughs> he says, I am giving a transportation strike to the city of New York as a Christmas present. <laughs> Can you imagine all of New York waking up and looking under the tree? <laughs> they say, just what I've always wanted. And on the other hand, you see, Lindsay came on. You know, Lindsay is the, is the epitome of the cool Yale man. And Lindsay says, well, I don't know whether or not Mr. Quinn has really looked at my list. I've submitted a list of eminently qualified men to arbitrate the transportation difficulties. I'm waiting to hear personally from Mr. Quinn. Personally, I'm going to stay out of it. Somehow you have shades of Ike back again. Ike stayed out of everything. Ike, whenever confronted with a problem, called up his golf pro. 
And so, you know, <laughs> off in the corner I can hear the sounds of this voice saying, The Honorable Mr. Lindley. And so you have the fantastic picture of New York in transition. The evils are fist fighting the goods back and forth. Well, I'm watching this fantastic picture today, see, of that split. On the one hand, it's a very bad football game. Did you see it? These were two losers playing each other, friends. Maryland has won three games and dropped nine. Penn State won four games and dropped seven. So it is like despair meeting apathy. <laughs> on one side of the screen and both were nervous <laughs> and on the other side of the screen you see there's two guys in this little capsule just waiting the smoke is shooting out of the behind you know they're waiting and all the while they can hear Mel Allen he is saying folks they're on the 44 yard line in just a moment we'll switch it to Merrill Miller deep thinker We'll tell you what's going on. And, Mer and where was Merrill Moore today? He was not down there where they were shooting the rocket. This shows you what America really thinks is important. He is in the press box watching the football game. <laughs> That's right. And once in a while, they throw it to him. They'd say, oh, yes, uh, okay, Paul Christman, you've just explained that fumble there. Now, speaking of fumbles, let's go to Merrill Muller. He'll tell us about the space shot. And Merrill says, well, everything's okay here, Mel. Going off on schedule, we're down to countdown nine. And now back to you. Mel, it's on the 40-yard line, folks. And you see this thing, the lights are flashing. And at the last second, they switch to watch the astronauts go up. Boom, it goes. And you see it disappearing into the distance. And you hear this fantastic roar somewhere. They have a laugh track, an applause track. The audience has seen another bomb being thrown. You know that old football expression, there goes Y.A. Tittleback, he's throwing the long bomb. And there goes that bomb arching out towards outer space. You can hear the crowd roar. And then all of a sudden the announcer says, and now we pause for a commercial. And the football team is left on the 40-yard line. These two guys are just approaching apogee. Or is it pipogee? They're up there, you see, and they cut just like all good dramatic programs, just at the, at the most exciting moment of all, they cut to this commercial. And it says, now we have a commercial. And on comes this car. Did you see that scene of the car? What a juxtaposition with this whole thing with the astronauts and the football players. On comes a car, and it drives into a dance floor. <laughs> you ever tried to drive your Plymouth into a dance floor, friends? And there's a chick going like this, you know? She's going back and forth, and the music is going, and there's a couple of little tall, skinny guys with fluffy sweaties, and they're going like this. And in comes the car. It drives in, and there's a guy sitting in there with a chick, and it's a convertible. And he's looking at her, and she's looking at him. And the rest of the crowd, they don't even say, Hi, Charlie! Hello, Mabel! They all walk around, and they feel the car. And I have a feeling I'm looking at a new kind of sex right. <laughs> it's fantastically obscene. I go, dum, da, da, dum, da, da, dum, da, da, dum. And this guy is running his hands over the fanny of this Plymouth. You know? And the chick and the guy just sit. 
And then I hear this voice say, yes, it's the new Dynamic 66 Plymouth. And now back to the space shot. <laughs> and then comes the football game on again, leaving those two people sitting in the front seat of their car forever. With those tall, thin guys with the fluffy sweaters running their hands over the hood. Yes. <laughs> I looked at that and I said, holy smokes. And I could see whole new vistas opening up before me. You know, it's a new sport, this business of space. And I could just see it now. ABC's great wide, wide world of sports brings you the car wrecking derby from Maniac Falls, Utah. We also bring you the Aquaplane Championship from Whoopi, Florida. We bring you Space Shot Gemini 7 with those two new star astronauts, Wally Wally and Charlie Charlie. And we bring you World War III. Stay tuned. <laughs> new sports, you know. Uh, you know, did you see, you know, that reminds me, I'm not kidding. Did you see a couple of weeks ago on the wide, wide world of sports? Here are these, there's this one scene, you know, they always have these different, and, and what, what, the word sport is very important to remember. That's a significant word in any society. And so it says, and now we bring you the water skiing championship from Oahu. You see these guys, they're all doing, they're hanging 10, you know, and they're like this, they're running like that. And there's a quick shot, and he says, now we take you down to Dynamite Field in Florida, where the new, uh, where the new fighter squadrons are doing their target practice on the wide, wide world of sports. And you see 17 jet fighters going, Wee! And then the announcer says, and now uh, team number six, the Phantom Rockets are ahead by four points. We'll see just how Captain A.L. Watanabe does now. He's got the target in his sights. And you see this poor little airplane flying along. Says he's got the target in his sights. Nine, six, five, three, four, two, one. Boom! You see this rocket go, That's a direct hit and another triumph for the world of sports. We now return you to the Aquaplane Championships. I'm watching this. Holy smokes. And I never realized when I was in the war that I was involved in a big Rose Bowl game. You know, it never occurred to us that we were members of a fantastic team. It never occurred to us that General Eisenhower was that big quarterback at headquarters. And over there on the other side was that other big quarterback at headquarters, von Rundstedt. And we were facing each other somewhere in some vast arena, vaguely called uh, uh, Soldier's Field. <laughs> oh, oh, you don't know about Soldier's Field? Like Soldier's Field is right on the shore of Lake Michigan, friends. And one of my earliest, one of my earliest influences was Soldier's Field. As a kid, my old man was the biggest freeloader in the entire area. He loved parades. He never missed a parade. And you know that in, in, in Chicago, they have parades. They've got parades that have been going on since 1948. And the next day, oh, I'm serious. Uh, here in New York, they're mad at parades. You know, anytime a parade breaks out on Fifth Avenue, every cab driver says, oh, what is it, the Croatians? What is the Croatian parade? Look at them nuts with the funny hats. Ah, you might. Not Chicago. When a parade breaks out, 
the whole town drifts to Michigan Avenue and stands and watches them march past. And there I stood with my old man endlessly, year after year, hanging on to his knee, watching feet go by. <laughs> watching feet go by. And about every ten seconds, the old man would holler, and it would filter down, see? And he'd say, Jeannie, there goes the parade queen. He loved parade queens. You know the chick that sits on the back of the, of the big Cadillac and waves and throws confetti? She's got this big hat on her head that's a big crown. And she sits back there, and with her are the two chicks who came in second and third and who hate her guts. <laughs> oh, yeah, have you seen those phony smiles when Miss America is crowned? And Miss Wisconsin comes up to celebrate and to shake her hand. Those big smiles. Yeah. Well, that's the scene that you see in the big car where the queen of the parade is floating by. This is a pure American image. This chick. Well, I will never forget that. Whole, you know, every time I see one of those queens being crowned in every football game. You notice that in between the halves? You'll hear the guy saying, now here is the Utah State Queen of the ball. She is down there about to present the game ball to the quarterback. And you see this chick. How many of you ever had any real involvement in a thing like that? I will never forget. I had a fantastic, well, I should put it this way, a highly educational experience with a chick that was nominated and elected. Queen of Hammond, Indiana. Yeah, well, you don't know the half of it, Jack. Wow, what a queen. And she's this little skinny girl, see? I'm going with her. And the two of us are marching through life together. You know, one of those things, one of those awful things where about the age of nine, it's somehow decided in the neighborhood that you go with Dorothy, and Dorothy goes with you, and you and Dorothy are going to be married someday. And you're going to, you know, live forever with a little window box. And... Ooh. You know what I mean, man, you know? Ooh. There's a whole bunch of guys here who it happened to. I can see it. Only but for the fact that this chick got elected queen, it would have happened to me. We're going through life, you know, hand in hand, eating Fleischmann's yeast together. When all of a sudden, how much time do we got? A minute and 30 seconds. Well, don't worry, I'll finish the story. We'll be back immediately after the news. Which, by the way, is the same news we've been reading since last Wednesday. <laughs> yes, indeed, we've got a newsman here who applauded louder than any of you. And, of course, the weather. There's nothing that New York loves better than to hear weather forecasts. New York, the air-conditioned jungle, is a little bit worried about that big thing over it called the sky. Oh, yes, there's nothing more heart-rending than the sight of a New Yorker when the first drops of rain come down. And he cowers in a doorway on 6th Avenue. What the devil's happening? <laughs> they figure somebody on the 23rd floor couldn't wait. <laughs> and in nine cases out of ten, he's right. 
I will never forget getting an earful on Park Avenue one night. Holy smokes. We'll be back in just five minutes at the limelight. Let's hear it. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. That I know, fella. Gee whiz. I want everybody to think he's got nine hands, all of them in my face. I want everybody to think, you see, I want to keep up the myth that the best stuff happens when we're off the air. So let's hear the sound of an angry boo. Let's hear it. Boo! You know, that, that reminds me, doesn't that clean out the clinkers, gang? I'm serious. A little good, honest, healthy hate. You know, you'd be surprised. All I've got to do here at the limelight is just holler, all right, boo me. And within five minutes, I see the eyes turning red and purple. And all of a sudden, I see a, an arm go back and a hand grenade flashes. And some guy waves a big sign that says, love. You know, speaking of love, <laughs> there is inside of everyone, every last one of us, there is a latent demonstrator. I'll never forget a couple of months ago, I am walking past the U.N. And you know the U.N., this is this great big... <laughs> There's a John Bircher. <laughs> Mention U.N. and he falls apart. It's a communist plot. He can tell a plot every time he goes up First Avenue, boy. Well, you take a look at the U.N., you know, and it's this great big tinker toy set over there on the river. It's beautiful, see? And I am walking past the U.N., and there's a bunch of demonstrators there, see? A bunch of guys, you know, and they've got, they've got hair shirts on, and they've got sackcloth and ashes. And you know where I can get a good sackcloth sports shirt, you know? Where do they come out? Macy's going to bring them out, you know? little sackcloth here, and it's got little pockets for the ashes on the side, you know. little hair shirt to keep you reminded of your mortality, you know. And I'm walking. I'm, I think, by the way, I suspect that's one of the reasons why religion was bigger in earlier generations. All of men's suits were scratchier. Listen, I had a suit when I was a kid. My mother bought me a Sunday suit. I'll tell you, it was fantastic. It was made out of number three Brillo pads. <laughs> you know the kind of suit where you can't even touch the inside. You walk down the street, you know, your feet go like that. Oh, boy, chicks don't have that problem. You know, they got all kinds of silky things around them. No wonder chicks don't grow up to write the Ninth Symphony. <laughs> I say that, that Beethoven had scratchy long johns. I'll tell you, I can remember that suit that was scratchy. It would get me here, and it would get me in the inside of the knees. It would get me in places I can't even describe. There are ladies and children listening. And that suit would just scratch and crawl over me. And you, you could feel little vines and twigs would stick out on the top. You know, all over you. All over you would scratch, and I'd go to, to Sunday school. And I would sit down in Sunday school. You know, the kid has to find a way to sit down. You'd and the skin is coming off. And I would sit there, and we'd had this, this Sunday school lady teacher. 
And you know, she's wearing all this nylon and silk, see? And she says, children, today we're taking up the lesson of Job. We are going to discuss Job today. And all of you know that Job was taken with a plague of boils. And every last male child sitting there not only had a scratchy suit that went all the way down to his ankles, he had a set of pimples that started about three feet above his head and worked all the way down into the ground. You notice that Job was a man, was not a chick. And so these things go to make up that male mystique, which we never talk about. You know, speaking of the male mystique, one time I'm sitting in the office. I'm a kid, see? Now, now it's funny. Have you ever run into genuine innocence? I mean, outside of your own. <laughs> I mean, the real thing, you know, and I'm just a kid, and I'm working as an office boy. Let me tell you the story now. All of you want to hear a steel mill story, I'm going to tell you one. It's a steel mill story. Now, the steel mill lays like some giant iron monster. It just lays there in the sand on the far end of Lake Michigan. Now, that lake is frozen in the wintertime. In the summertime, it boils. So, in the winter, the steel mill is 190 degrees below zero. And the wind comes screaming down between the buildings. These tin buildings that are standing there with these great machines banging. And inside those buildings are open-heart furnaces. 200 degrees. And so a man's front, when he stands by the furnace, it's just bubbling. Like a plate of fudge, you know. He's popping out with the heat. His behind is an ice cube. And so he turns around on a spit, you know. And he gets the back end and he freezes the front end for a while. And back and forth he goes. That's the world of the steel mill. So I'm working as a kid, as an office boy, in the tin mill. Now, the steel mill is in the middle of what they call mill towns. Have you ever seen a real mill town? I'm telling you, you wouldn't believe it. There's dust that drifts down and oil and crud. And, and the sound of machines going night and day is as normal as the sound of traffic in New York. I can remember as a kid lying in my sack, you know, in the bedroom. I'm just laying there, see. And the whole house is jiggling. Ever since I was born. It's just jiggling. I never knew that houses didn't jiggle till I came. <laughs> Serious, you know, I just, it's just a condition of life. It just goes like that. And you hear... <laughs> and you know they're running a heavy heat through the 14-inch merchant mill. And then off in the distance you'd hear the sound of a train. Ooh. It was the 20th Century Limited. It was on its way to Shangri-La. It was on its way to California. It was coming from New York. It didn't even stop in Indiana. It just went right over the top. And we'd lie there, and my mother, of course, was reading photoplay. All of her life, she read what Robert Cummings is really like. And she'd sit there and she'd read about Cary Grant. And in the house next door, Mrs. Bruner would sit in the, in the window and read True Story. She would read True Story. And the, you know the, how, the, how the True Story covers always look. 
it showed this girl with the golden curls and underneath it would be the caption I was the prom queen and I was a virgin until I met Ricky the drum major in seven installments and Mrs. Bruner who weighed 700 pounds is sitting in there reading about Ricky the drum major and about the prom queen and all the while her husband Ralph Mr. Bruner for the last week and a half has been trying to crawl up the back stairs with a snootful. You'd hear him crawl up, he'd make three steps and then he'd slide back. Four more steps and he'd slide back five. I can remember lying in my sack and I'd hear and then you'd hear I'll tell you, it had more suspense in it than Ben Casey. I'm laying there, and you'd hear Bruner sliding up and down there. And you could hear the pages of Mrs. Bruner's true story being turned. She is reading about true life. Whereas all the while, Bruner is lying out there in the back. And you can hear the thunder of those great trains going over and the roar of the steel mill. And one day, I'm standing in the office. I'm an office boy. And by the way, who is the most famous office boy in the comics? Speaking of trivia. Smitty, that's right. <laughs> Smitty is an office boy forever. <laughs> He's been an office boy longer than Orphan Annie's been a virgin. <laughs> He's been office boy. And what's the name of Smitty's boss? Come on. Ah, you call yourself Americans? <laughs> you call yourself Americans? All right. What? Bailey. Mr. Bailey. All right, smart guy. You want to take me on? Okay. Where did they work and what did they do? Oh, all right. Okay, all of you who want to know, write in to basic information. In care of this radio station, Americana Division. Well, okay, I'm this office boy, see, and I'm a great Smitty fan. Have you ever noticed the wonderful rapport that exists between Smitty and Mr. Bailey and all the other people in the office? Well, it, our office wasn't exactly like that. <laughs> in fact, no office is exactly like that. And so we had this guy, Mr. Snyder. Had this guy, he was the great stone face. He was the boss of our office. And you know, it's funny, I've always been a great, a great fan of these patterns that people fall into. And there's millions of them. And I, I'm sure that every one of us here in this audience knows at least three patterns of that kind. Now, for example, there is an elevator operator down at the radio station who I don't know where he got it. He stands down there, he's the elevator starter, see. And there's 87 million people go into this elevator every day. And every time I come along, I walk up there, you know, to the elevator. I stand there. I try to get past him. I don't want it to happen. But it always does. He spots me. And he says, ah, how are you today, Mac Shepard? <laughs> Mac Shepard. 
and I have to pretend it's funny, see? It's an obscure little joke he's developed. And I say, yeah, Mech Shepard. <laughs> That's very good. That's <laughs> very good, Mech Shepard. <laughs> he has said it for five years, three times a day. Well, there's millions of these things. And Mr. Snyder, I wonder how many of you know of these things in your own offices and that. Mr. Snyder had a bit. I would come in every morning, and he was always there early. And he would sit at his desk. He's just sitting there, you know, and he's looking over the morning report. He'd look up, and this was Mr. Snyder's funny. I'd walk in. You know, my office kid, they come in. He'd look up and he'd say, Moaning, son. Well, at first, I thought that he had been heavily influenced by John Wayne movies. <laughs> you know, I really did. I thought he was a southerner or something. And then he would go, Moaning, son. <laughs> He'd look at me. Then I'd go, <laughs> Moaning, Mr. Snyder, moaning. And then he'd be happy. He'd say, moaning, moaning. He'd go back to work. He didn't do it to anybody else. He'd say to the other guys that come in, Hiya, Charlie. He'd say, Hello there, Freddy. All I had to do was come in the door and he'd go, Moaning, son. Well, I carried on that little myth, you see. Every day I would come in, I'd steal myself. I'd say, Here it goes. Moaning, son. I'd duck. I'd say, moaning, Mr. Snyder. <laughs> I'd sit down. Well, one day, there's four of us, you see. You know, I have a feeling that guys who live in army units, you know, who live in a platoon, very closely interrelated, have much in common with four guys who live in the same office. Year after year, day after day, eon after eon. Four guys at these four desks. There was Chester Gooch. I'm not inventing it. That's his name, Chester Gooch. This is a very common Indiana name. <laughs> yes, and there was Delbert Bumpus. I'm not making these names. Oh, all right, all right. So you think Irving Slivovich is a good name? Okay, you know, or Charlie Corngold. I laughed when I first came out, you know. So every, every area of the country has got its funny little names. And Delbert Bumpus would sit there, Delbert Bumpus. Nobody laughed. That's his name, you know. In fact, we had a guy came to work for us, Cassie Ledbetter. I'm serious. Nobody laughed. There's a common name out there. There was Delbert Bumpus, and there was Chester Gooch, and there was Mr. Snyder. He never had a first name. Mr. Snyder. And me, old chap. God only knew how I finally at long last arrived in this hellhole. Who knew at that time, from my humble beginnings, it was downhill all the way. <laughs> Till I finally arrived here in the village. Well, I'm standing there, you know, and I'm doing my office bit, and I had a mimeograph machine. On one end of the table I worked on, and on the other end of the table was a ditto machine. How many of you know what a ditto machine is? With the gelatin roll. You know, there was something about those gelatin rolls, those big gelatin rolls. See, I would get a new one about every month and a half when the other one was purple. You know, it would be purple and it would, stuff would be falling off. And every time I'd run off a copy, there'd be big pieces of jello all over it, you know. 
and a clod. And so finally I would go sniggling up to Mr. Snyder. He was in charge of all money at the steel mill, or at least in our office. And you know, this is always something I'm sure that all of you guys who work in offices understand. You're in a trillion-dollar organization. They're building the steel for the world. Great big buildings, million dollars are going down the drain every five minutes, and Snyder won't give you a new dinner roll. <laughs> that is a fact. We've got a... You know, it took me four months on the air for this radio station to give me a microphone? <laughs> this radio station throws $50,000 cocktail parties. But microphones, no. And so that's the kind of scene it was, you know. And I was just learning these little things. I couldn't understand why it was. And so Mr. Snyder would get 25 copies with no printing on them. This would go for four days. And finally, I would feel a little funny. I would take my poor little battered ditto roll. It's dripping and it's all melted. I've run out six. I ran out on one ditto roll. I would get more mileage, believe me than the presses that print the Sears robot catalog get. I used to print like the equivalent of 5,000 Bibles on one, you know. And I would bring this roll up to him and I'd say, Mr. Snyder. And he'd look up with that cold, hard look. Here's the wastrel again. And he had one line he would say, he would say, Shep, Jimmy never asked for no rolls. That was the previous office boy. He was always holding that other lout against me, see. He was always telling me about this other great office boy that never asked for rolls. He used to work 24 hours a day. He painted the office walls. He would come in and babysit for Mr. Snyder's kids. He played the violin when things got tough in the office. I never saw this Jimmy, but I grew to hate him even more. You know, later on when I went into the army and they were always talking about, I'll never forget this, I'll never forget this army captain. We're in what they call the indoctrinating course, in that peculiar army pronunciation. Indoctrinating course. Have a special way. Oblique Harch. There was only one word they knew how to pronounce. <laughs> You'll have to tell them about that when you get home, gang. It covered everything, boy. Like a blanket of peanut butter, see? And so this captain says, All right, part of this indoctrinating course, you got to learn who the enemy is. We are fighting a man named Hitler. And I saw Jimmy. Instantly, it was Jimmy again. And they'd flash a picture of Hitler on the screen, and you know, he looked like the way I saw Jimmy. With that little niggling mouth. Those funny little eyes. The eyes of a guy who polished the inside of chandeliers. You know, that kind of thing. And so I would go up to Mr. Snyder, and I'd say, Mr. Snyder, please, just for Christmas, just for Thanksgiving, for my mother, Mr. Snyder, and for Inland Steel, Mr. Snyder, may I have just one more roll? 
and Snyder would reel back in his chair. He had one of these big revolving chairs, you know, you hear, and he looks out of his window where he can see the great ore ships carrying inland steel's wealth to the far nations, and he sees the steel coming out of the blast furnace, and he turns back and says, okay, just remember where you got it. You got it from management. You bring any damn union in here, and you know what's going to get burned. And I had a feeling, you know, somewhere, someplace, office boys were forming a union. And in that contract, they were going to demand, they were going to demand rolls for their ditto machines. They were going to demand all kinds of unnatural and rotten stuff, you know. They were going to demand things like new chalks for the markers. Little niggling things like that, see. Well, every morning I would run my machine. See, I'm running off the things like that. And then I would run my ditto machine. I had a mimeograph machine with the, all the stencils would come. I would stand there, you know, I'm part of this vast machine. You know, they're making steel. I have a fantastic movement on that old mimeograph machine. You notice that boy, the old wrist falls right into it. And by the way, I was a cheater. I had the, you know the counter on the side of it? I had it set up ten points. They never knew. I'd turn it out, say, and it had a bell on it. When I hit 2,900 copies, every day it would go doing. And I knew every day I was cheating in them steal out of ten copies. Look at Doing, I'd say, okay, Mr. Snyder, and I'd bring them, they're all wet. And I used to love to slide them across his desk. He always had this clean, this clean green pad, you know. And I would slide those dirty, wet, crummy, dripping copies. And it'd be all these numbers would slide over, over on his shirt, you know. I'd say, oh, but slip, Mr. Snyder. Morning, morning, morning. Then he'd love me again, you know, with this little thing going. So one day, let me tell you the scene. Office conversation follows a very set pattern. Guys have the same jokes they tell for a hundred years. Back and forth, over and over they go. And everybody laughs at them. Well, one morning, Chester Gooch, and by the way, if you want to picture Chester Gooch, he had what they call in Indiana a round haircut. You ever seen the round haircut? Looks like the head's kind of growing out in the back. You see it on all the, you know, the tourists that walk up and down in front of Radio City. You see them with the round haircuts, you know. It's an Indiana haircut, you know, the red neck. And old Chet comes in, and he sits down at the desk. And there were all, the, Chet was one of those guys who every morning eats his lunch. Right away, the first thing he opens is lunch. You know, right away, he opens his lunch, two big salami sandwiches, you know, a couple of real doozies laying there. And Chester Gooch always brought for lunch a fish, a smoked fish. You know those golden smoked herrings that look, you know, you've seen them, see? And he would lay that smoked fish out there in front of him, and he would open his red thermos bottle, and the steam would come pouring out. And you'd smell that, that 
that, that acrid coffee that his wife made for him. You could always imagine the kind of home life Chester Gooch lived. You'd smell a salami. And he would take the... He had a way of taking the skeleton of the fish. He'd sit it. You know, he'd put it all out there. He's waiting for his report to come down from the tin mill scales. I'm over there running the thing. Mr. Snyder's sitting over there counting paper clips. He's piling them, and he'd straighten them up, you know. Have you ever had a boss that straightened paper clips? He's sitting there straightening them up, and he's laying them down, and he used to test rubber bands and tie knots in them, see, the broken ones, and he's piling it all back over there. And Delbert Bumpus is slowly nodding. Delbert was the drinking member of our crew. He was always vaguely drifting in and out of reality. He'd drift back and forth. But he was a great tin mill checker. Delbert Bumpus never made a mistake in a hundred years of tin mill checking. You know the illusion, you know, you know the great myth of the drunken newspaper man? You know that the, every time you see a story of a newspaper man, it's played by Lee Tracy. <laughs> you know, he's got his hat pushed on the back of his head and he's got a thing that says press sticks out, say. And he's always saying, all right, you guys, roll the presses. Old Lee's here, and he's got a snootful. And you know that when old Lee's got a snootful, he writes like an angel. Today on 14th Street, the eagle screamed at dawn, and a little Puerto Rican immigrant died. You know that myth of the great drunken newspaper man? Well, Delbert Bumpus was the great drunken tin mill checker. He was a myth in the tin mill. He could check better drunk than most guys could check sober. And he would come in with all his cards and sit down. Never made a mistake. And that was our little family. You got the family, see? I would come in every day. I'm eager. And I'm about to go in the army, see? I was kind of like their pet. That I had already signed up and I was waiting for the letter. And I was, you know, kind of like their little thing. And one day I'm standing there running this thing. And Chester sits down, and he had a way, you know, of, of taking the fish. He would pull it back like that. Have you ever seen a really good dried fish eater? I mean, there's all kinds of little skills that never get applied. Chet Gooch could take the skeleton out of a dried fish in one quick movement. He just, oh, and there it would stand. You know how they used to show in the comics, the crazy cat comics, there'd be the head of a fish with the thing sticking out? He's the only man I knew who could do it. He'd go, he'd hold it up like that. And there'd be a little round of applause among us, you know. And old Chet, by the way, speaking of dried fish, what radio station is this, gang? Come on, hit it. Speaking of fish, New York, that's right. All right, so I'm standing there. It was one of those days like any other. I was about to get a great lesson. We never know when we're going to get him, you know. And the door opens. In steps Chester. And he's got a funny look on his face. Very strange look. He sits down. Mr. Snyder nods. Morning, Chet. Chet opens up his lunch. And then all of a sudden he says, You know, fellas... Funny thing happened to me last night. And everybody says, what? Can't imagine a funny thing happened to the Chester Gooch. 
I stop Ryan and the thing is, you know, I'm just listening. I'm the kid, you know. I don't ask questions. These are all grown-ups. I'm a kid. I stand over there. And Mr. Snyder looks up and says, what happened, Chet? And Delbert Bumpus slowly comes out of his haze. What, what happened? <laughs> and Chet says, well, you know, you know, I live here in Indiana Harbor. Now, I have to explain to you, Indiana Harbor is a mill town that makes any mill town you have ever seen, believe me, look like Miami Beach. <laughs> this is a mill town that is slowly being eaten up by the blast furnace. You can hear big bites once. Arr! A whole street goes down, you know. You know, you know, let's put it in other terms. If you can consider New York, let's say, the left arm of the anatomy of life and Los Angeles is, let's say, the right ear. I hesitate to tell you. <laughs> You'll have to explain that to her when you get home. Well, anyway, <laughs> I'll never forget the time that was yelled out in a battalion formation. When a major stood out and he says, All right, you guys, this is the best damn what in the whole army. And somebody said it. And there was silence. And the Major said, You're damn tootin'. And I, friend, was made by the Scott Tissue Corporation. And I am gonna go to work. All right. So you see, there's all kinds of little things in and out. By the way, speaking of the Scott Tissue Corporation, did you see that fantastic ad they had in the New York Times? Did you see that ad? They had a full-page ad about five months ago in the Times, and it showed all these girls running, beautiful chicks, you know, about 16-year-old girls, and they're running at the camera. They're all running, you know, with that go-go look, their eyes shining, and underneath it it says, Here come tomorrow's goddesses, and we are ready for them. Somehow I have had that little warm thing that in the year 2870 it's going to be the same, fellas. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm standing in the office there, see, and he says, I live in Indiana Harbor, you know, guys. Now, Indiana Harbor was one of these great melting pot towns. It had a tremendous Polish population. It had an enormous Italian population. It had a... A Hungarian population. Chet himself was Hungarian. And it had a great population of Mexicans who had come up to work in a steel mill. And Chet lived next door to his friend, Jose. We all knew that his best friend next door was Jose. And they lived in these two little mill houses. Jose worked in the 40-inch mill, and Chet Gooch worked in the tin mill. And there was this little space in between their house, like there is in all mill towns. Just a little space. You know, it, it's like a universal air shaft. How many of you have ever lived in a little crummy hotel in New York? And at three in the morning, as your window looks out on the air shaft, you have a sense that all of the world is going by. That window. Oh, yes, you hear a beer can whistle down. Three in the morning. And then you hear something squishy go past. 
You know, you, you lie there in your bed, you know, on 49th Street. You wonder what's going on up there. And then you hear a, a scream filtered down. And then you once in a while, I used to, you know, I lived in this rotten hotel on 49th Street that had an air shaft. And I faced the air shaft. And every couple of days, I would, I would pry the window open to get just a little breath of air in there. And this fantastic smell would come in. You guys think you know anything about New York. You don't know nothing about New York until you've lived in a theatrical hotel. Right in the room next to me, there were three out-of-work seals. I'm serious. They were a seal act. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, you'd hear one or two of them would be drunk. And they'd be practicing. One of them played the bugle. And I remember this seal playing Columbia, the gem of the ocean. Over and over. He had a fantastic lip. No ideas, but boy, what a lip. They couldn't even afford a, an owner, you know. And so I stick my nose out and I smell the air, the night air. And I look down. And down below me, God knows how deep that air shaft went. All I know, it was already up to the third floor. The stuff. And it probably went all the way down to the core of the earth. Can you imagine an anthropologist? <laughs> Can you imagine an anthropologist a thousand years from now? He hits the jackpot. He hits a Bronx air shaft. He knows what life was like from the year... 1997, when it all ended, all the way down to the very beginnings of time. Way down at the bottom, he's finding arrowheads. Well, that was the kind of life that Chet, Chet Gooch lived. And Chet says, you know, there's a funny thing. A funny thing happened. He says, the other night, he says, you know, I'm looking out of my window. And I see Jose's window boxes. He said, you know, I got the window box. My wife's got the geraniums and all that stuff. And I look out to the window box, and I see Jose looking out of his window. And he's got this window box. And he keeps fooling around with these little plants, and he keeps paper bags over them. And then, you know what he did? And Snyder looks at him and says, what did he do? And Del Bumpus says, what? And I don't say anything. He says, well, you know, he did a funny thing. He takes the window box and he puts a sheet over it like he was hiding it. And he says, you know, I couldn't figure out what that was about. He says, and so a couple of days later, I'm sitting in there and we're playing, we're playing over Jose's house, Pinochle. And with him is his friend Pedro. And with me is my friend Stash. We're playing Pinochle, see. When all of a sudden I got the idea, I says, hey, Jose, and boy, we're listening to this scene. He says, Jose, what's with the uh, window box? He says, and all of a sudden, Jose doesn't say nothing. He looks at me. He says, is the window box? She yeah, the window box. And with that, he gets up and he goes into the next room. And he comes out with a paper bag. And he's got this sack. He sits down at the table and says, uh, how would you guys like to light up? 
Well, I say to Jose, what? Yeah, I, I smoke. He says, yeah, I have a camel. He says, I got a camel here. Jose says, no, there's no camel here. No, there's camel here, boss. And he takes out and he makes these funny, he says, you know, and, and, and Chester now is getting all excited, see? He's left his fish there and his salami sandwiches. And now he's standing up. He says, you know, he takes these long pieces of brown paper and he makes these long cigarettes. And his friend Pedro, he says, now watch how you do this. He says, he lights up and he goes. <laughs> he says, you suck like that? And, ooh, it's a very good cigarette. It's a very good cigarette. And he says, I smoke the cigarette. And you know, fellas, he says, you know the funny, you know what they say? They say about walking a mile for a camel? He says, these guys got real cigarettes. He said, I'll tell you, it was fantastic. And with that, I see Snyder. He's looking over like this. Bumpus sitting like this. And you know, I'm standing over. I don't know what they're talking about, these funny cigarettes. My idea of funny cigarettes were these candy cigarettes, you know? <laughs> you know the kind you'd get at the sweet shop with the little red end? I'd walk around with a little cigarette sticking out, you know? My idea of a real smoke was a licorice pipe. You know, that kind of thing. And once in a while, I'd smell my old man's cigarettes, you know, like that, see. And all of a sudden, Chet says, you know, he says, them cigarettes, he says, they're very funny. They've got some kind of a, of a Spanish, a Mexican name. It's right on the tip of my tongue. And Mr. Snyder says, uh, Chet, with the word marijuana, And Chet lit up like a Christmas tree. He says, yeah, I know. It's some kind of a Mexican word. Marijuana, that was it. And Mr. Snyder looks out, and he looks out over the Inland Steelworks, and he said a word, which it was the first time I'd ever heard. He says, pot. <laughs> and Chester says, what was that, Mr. Snyder? He says, nothing. And I did not know it. But I was present. It was the first instance of evil in Hammond, Indiana. I want to report to you something. Three months later, Chet floated in, did a barrel roll. He had a beard that went down to his knees. He was carrying a guitar. He was the first hippie. Let's give Chester a hand. Well, you know, I'll tell you, <laughs> speaking of hippiness, you know, have, have you noticed there's a term called, called uh, absurd or sick humor? They sometimes call it black humor. Well, I, 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 I submit to any of you who are sitting right here that black humor has just begun. The real black humor, friends, is not poor old Chet Gooch sitting there smoking his first joint. The real black humor, the other day, somebody sends me a copy of a New Jersey newspaper. Boy, that's where black humor is rampant, I'll tell you. And, and here's this New Jersey newspaper, you know, this friendly little suburban paper. And it shows a bunch of ladies, you know, with beads, you know, the kind of ladies with the beads. 
they've got their hair all up, you know, that, that kind of lady. You know the kind of lady? We all knew those chicks when they were girls. You know, you, you get the idea that some girls are born wearing girdles. You know, they come, they're, they're wearing girdles in the whole scene, you know. And this is that kind of suburban lady, that very proper lady, at, who, by the way, thinks that the Doris Day pictures are not sexy. You know, a little family entertainment, and all the while this guy with the pink sweater is running through, chasing her from bedroom to bedroom, you know. Well, this is the kind of world it is. And these ladies are all standing around, a, a, a big punch bowl. Are you fans of the Society page? Oh, I love it, I'll tell you. I love to pick up the society page, and there's, there's always these girls with the hair brushed down. You know, it's brushed down, it's blonde, and underneath it is that single word that says, betrothed. <laughs> you know, betrothed. It says, Mr. and Mrs. J.D. Emery Sr. of Darien <laughs> announced the engagement of their daughter, Kathy, to Mr. L.D. Watson Myers III of Yale and Groton, now on duty as a lieutenant commander with the Navy. He plans to take up his law practice with his father when he returns from the service. Here are these people. They look so nice. She's looking out. She's betrothed. Well, betrothed. Do you want me to repeat it again, fella? He's the parlor wit. <laughs> He's known as the funniest guy in Hackensack. <laughs> at the VFW, you know. A born bowling team captain. <laughs> I told you, fellow, watch it. <laughs> and so, here she is, betrothed, you know. She's looking out of that thing. And I've got a rotten, I've got a rotten mind. I'm telling you, a rotten mind. When I see that picture of that beautiful, virginal girl with her hair brushed down, and she went to Miss Emery's classes, she attended Bennington, where she majored in modern dance, and now she is working in production. Just in production, see? Well, I, I have this rotten mind, see? I keep seeing the scene that's behind it. I can see this, this Mercedes 190. It's pulled off into the dark woods somewhere back of the reservoir on the other side of Darien, see? And here's this guy with his collar ripped open. And it's J.G. Watkin Myers III. He's home from the Navy. He's four sheets to the wind, see? And he's got a hold of this chick. But there she is, you know, and they're both in this sweaty scene. And four months later, four months later, the girl who attended Miss Bennington's classes, she's coming out of this obscure little obstetrician's office. And the next thing you know, there's a phone call that is sent through the Bureau of Ships. And it arrives at a carrier somewhere off Beirut. And a young lieutenant commander is standing in front of this, this vice admiral. And the vice admiral looks up and says, Listen, Mac, pull in your gut. 
Stand at attention when you come in here. And the kids stand. At ease. The vice admiral looks around at this big world map. Do you know Googie Amory's daughter? Googie Amory. Googie Amory. He says, Googie Amory. I know anybody named Googie, sir. You know a chick named Barbie that hangs around a pool room at Darien? Yeah. He says, well, you've got orders to go back. And the next thing you know, the announcement comes out in the Times. Betrothed. He rejoins his father's law office and this little basic embryo is already enrolled in Harvard. And the chain of command continues marching on and on. Let's give the establishment a big hand, gang. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I, I, I wonder because you see here was that picture out of that New Jersey newspaper. And here's a whole lot of these ladies, you know. It's, it's, uh, it's Miss Amory now, 20 years later. She's very proper. And there's the punch bowl. And on the side it says, Mrs. Watt West 7th is the program chairman. And Mrs. J.L. Smythe Third is the tickets chairman. And over here is Mrs. Watkins Barnaby Brown... She is in charge of being in charge. And they're all smiling out of that picture. It was a Jersey newspaper. And above it, it says, Cancer Soiree. <laughs> Big success. I am not inventing it. Jersey has invented a new kind of tea party, the Cancer Soiree. It makes anything Terry Southern could invent look like greasy kid stuff. Well, all right, you know, I want to tell you one other thing. If you think that we have touched upon the true essence of the deep-seated black humor of our time. The other day, now get this, I don't want this to get outside of this room. Shh. It won't, W-O-R. They turn the transmitter very low after this hour. I'm going to tell you a little story. I go into F.A.O. Schwartz. How many of you ever go into F.A.O. Schwartz and think you're having a pot dream? I mean, you don't have to have LSD. Just take one look at those fantastic Santa Clauses. They got a 70-foot-high 70 70 hippopotamus. And it's stuffed, you know. Can you imagine some little lout up in Westport getting this 70-foot stuffed hippopotamus under his Christmas tree? Are you aware that FAO Schwartz has fully transistorized ship models now? And the best seller is a fully transistorized tiny Nautilus submarine that shoots real torpedoes. And underneath it it says, it's a lot of fun to put in the pool. I could just see this dowager swimming, you know. And all of a sudden she gets what she's been deserving for a hundred years. Pow! 
And it's her little son upstairs, you know, he's working the controls. Well, I'll tell you, I go through, oh, another thing they've got, this is a beautiful thing, you know, the, the anthropomorphology of our time knows no bounds. Are you aware, I'm talking about the animal hang-up. Do you know that you can now buy a fully transistorized, and I mean it, absolutely faithful, beautifully done scale model of a live dog? And it does all the things that dogs do. All of them. <laughs> but you're in charge, see? I'm serious. And the, the caption says, at long last you can get a dog that really respects you. <laughs> and it's for the new kind of people. You know the new people who all secretly love animals but hate what they do under the coffee table. Now he does it in this little plastic thing, say, you know. And, and incidentally, I suspect that the same people, if their true wishes were out, would be able to buy a tiny transistorized baby. You know, that says, I need you. I love you. Oh. And it cries and it wets. And it gets to be a JD. And it has an Oedipus complex. But the good thing about it is when you go out, you just turn it off. You leave it. <laughs> By the way, almost every family is doing that. That's called summer camp-itis. How many kids grew up under a counselor in our world? Well, they've got one other great thing that I think you should know about. It's a game. Now, you remember the days when kids played games like Monolope? Don't make me change. That's the, what we called it in Hammond. I'm going to continue to call it Monolope. They played games like Indianapolis Race. You know, when you spin the little pointer and it says, move two places forward, you've got a flat tire, go in the pits. Or it says, move two spaces forward, go to go, pick up a card, and it says you have just inherited $50. Those wonderful little simple games. Well, now they've got a game that's one of the best sellers called The Big Funeral. I'm telling you, the big funeral. And the little kids all sit down to play for the chief prize. And as they go around the course, it says embalming room. And then it says florist. Move forward two spaces to the crematorium. And the kid that wins the game is awarded the most expensive funeral. I think... We have made a great step forward. As a matter of fact, for years I have been predicting the fun funeral that's held in a big drive-in. And you come tooling up in your Mercedes, and there is the deceased laid out there in his Bermuda shorts. He's wired in stereo. Let's give him a hand, okay? Let's give the deceased a big hand. And we'll be back at the limelight next Saturday at the same time. This is WOR Radio, your station for news.